Hi, and welcome to another episode of Gomology. Now, today, my guest is from the field of academia, which should be interesting. Would you like to introduce yourself, Joshua? I will. Thanks, Nick. Yeah, I'm Joshua Bluto. I've got a PhD in social anthropology. And what I'm really interested in is clothes, men and Instagram. That's what my field of research really is. And I've written a book, which has just come out, which is why I'm here with Nick, called Dressing Up, Men's Wear in the Age of Social Media, which really looks at kind of men who take pictures of what they wear and post it on Instagram, why they do it and what's that it's all about. So yeah, that's me really. That sounds like an incredibly narrow field to write a book about. Well, it, it is a narrow field. Uh, my my sort of academic training, if you like, is as a is as a social anthropologist, which is a weird and slightly narrow field in and of itself. But it's it's an area of, I suppose, self presentation. How we look and how we kind of dress is really important to the way in which we sort of think and feel and you know live. Uh, it's always been something for me that's really inherent to everything I do. I I'm sort of have a I have a vested interest in this, in that my interest in clothes and dress and all of that is kind of long-standing, and it's always been something I like to do. But when I went to do the research for this book, uh, I became fascinated by the kind of tailoring culture of London. That was my starting point. I went and talked to tailors and visited their shops and made relationships with some of them. Uh, but then I started to notice as these tailors were in their shops, they were taking pictures on their smartphones, and there was this whole other world that sat alongside these terrestrial spaces, these kind of real, you know, beautiful ateliers that kind of lived in this kind of weird digital world full of these brightly coloured, beautifully shot images of everything from how workshops were laid out to the cuff details on a particular jacket and, you know, clients who were coming in to be measured and had stuff made for them. So I became absolutely fascinated by this world, uh, and it totally consumed me. And it's it sort of has led to this this book and this yeah, as you say, very niche area of uh, academic interest. So it's a matter of really of men looking at men and their clothes, primarily on Instagram, I imagine. Yeah. So it's it started very much as an interest in tailored menswear. There's um there's another very eminent anthropologist at the University College London called Daniel Miller, who did a project some years ago about denim and blue jeans and was really interested how people kind of dressed in this singular garment that he talks about as being almost ubiquitous. So everybody's got a pair of blue jeans, he says. And him and his colleague, um, Sophie Woodward, who he wrote a couple of books with about this, they, they talk about blue jeans as being, they use this term post-semiotic, but it's sort of intellectually invisible. Everybody's got one, so they're sort of all the same. You just blend into the crowd. And I thought, okay, yeah, that's that's great, but actually that's not the case for everybody. There's people out there who dress to be visible, to be seen, and the people who spend vast amounts of money on their clothes, whether it's a bespoke suit or something funky from Dover Street Market or whatever. So I thought, okay, there's these people who wear these blue jeans all the time, but what about those other people, those those others? But I suppose in men's where we talk about peacocks and dandies and fops and, you know, this kind of historical narrative of men who've always looked a bit different. But I was really interested what this looked like sort of at the moment in London. 
So that was my starting point, really. And then it sort of fell into Instagram, where, as you say, Instagram is the sort of predominant site for this. There's this kind of idea of self-replication and showing kind of how you look. And it seemed to me, or it became apparent, I suppose, as I started to Instagram myself and do do as these other other guys were doing. That there's this whole network of other other men across the world, and not just men, but predominantly in this case, who do the same thing and sort of share in the joy of that experience of dressing up and kind of sharing that that sort of being different. Um, yeah, I think it's fascinating, and it, it's it's sort of I don't know. It's not so much a a sort of subculture, as I suppose you could talk about it, but there's something joyful about that shared kind of love of dress, I suppose. So instead of uh, joining a group of gorillas in the jungle, did you seek out a group of uh, like-minded fops and dandies? Well, it was a it was a funny one, really. I I did in the sense that I I spent quite a lot of my time in research talking and kind of sitting in tailor shops and having those conversations with them, going to their shows and kind of, you know, hanging out, soaking up that, that sort of ambience. But tailor shops are quite, um, they're quite concerned about you sort of talking to their clients too much. They don't necessarily want a researcher sat in the corner of the room kind of saying, you know, so why have you chosen that tweet? So it became Instagram where I was able to interact and talk and see and kind of become one of these one of the sort of clients, I suppose, of these tailors and people who sort of admired them and followed them as well. So, yeah, for me, that kind of interaction came online. And that's sort of where my search it kind of falls into two strands, really. There's the, the offline, going and chatting to people in the real world. And then this huge portion of online stuff as well, which is, a, I suppose, a kind of field of digital anthropology. That's how what we would talk about it as. Sounds like pretty cosy research, uh, sort of starting an Instagram account and then, uh, well, just <laughs> Instagramming. Yes. I mean, in many ways it is. And in terms of sort of anthropologists out there, lots of people go to sort of field sites internationally. That's their sort of um, their method. But in many ways, it's um, it, other people have done digital anthropology research before. But in terms of Instagram, it was very new. No one has particularly done it before and while some people are still doing it it's uh, it's quite a narrow field still but it struck me that instagram is so prolific now it sits in so many people's pockets we kind of fill it with our lives whether it's a curated version of our lives or whether it's kind of popping on it to instagram live and showing exactly what you're doing at the moment it it's such an important part of who we are and how we live our lives that to simply go and research in the offline world doesn't really give us the full picture of how we are, what we do and the stuff we kind of exist within anymore. And for anthropologists who are really interested in what it means to be human and the studies of you know, people without looking at social media, we only really get half the picture. So yeah, that, that it became very important for me because of that, I suppose. I imagine social media or Instagram must be, pretty interesting because it does show a, a sort of human behavior that you don't really find in the offline world this look at me the oversharing the, the weird sort of contacts you build up it does uh, and, and i've got sort of two ideas about this really i, I think there's this first sort of thing that you, you create these connections those contacts you, as you say those links across the world that you'd never 
get in real life. And whether that's because you like tailoring and clothing or whether it's because you're into football or a niche sport or a particular type of music, you can create links with people kind of globally that these, I describe them as networks, but I suppose groups is, a, is, is equally a good term. These collections of people with similar ideas or similar sort of tastes that kind of sit within this digital world and you can share and interact. I think that's lovely. There's also the possibility, I suppose, that that gives rise to extremism and various other not-so-nice things. But you're right as well that within Instagram, we behave in a way that's totally abnormal. You know, taking pictures of ourselves or what we're doing, that kind of sharing is is quite odd. But it's become so normal. That's the, for an anthropologist, that's the interesting thing, that it's kind of woven itself through our everyday lives. Yeah, I find... Um it was very, very easy to get very, very deep into Instagram. Mm. And it takes an awful lot of time, not necessarily sort of scrolling through and looking at other people's stuff, but keeping up that production yourself, even sort of one good photo a day, staging it, planning it, taking the photo, coming up with that great caption, posting it. And then, of course, the fallout. Is it well appreciated mm. that is a takes a lot of time and energy it is i mean this is something i write about in the book i think digital research is often seen as oh you just did a bit of instagram but but you're absolutely right the amount of time it takes to enter to try and build those relationships with a group of online users is huge you know and i think there's also a financial cost there of trying to acquire new items to to be seen in as well but you're right the amount of time and energy and emotional investment as well you create a, a new self really on the platform which is kind of weird but that self then lives on and even if you're not interacting with it it can still be seen and people can still sort of talk to it so there is this time investment as well as this emotional investment as well and i found which i thought was really bizarre after about two years of trying to instagram every day that the the digital self almost began to be the the more, I don't know, predominant part of my life, both because it was the part of my life that lots of people saw more than me, you know, they were more likely to see me on Instagram than in real life, but also because everything you do is sort of thinking about the next post. There's a kind of addictive quality to it as well, you know, whether you're thinking, oh, that's a really beautiful brick wall, I'll have a photo against that, or, oh, now, what am I going to wear with what, because it's got to look right, or... So, and then, as you say, dealing with the fallout as well, you know, trying to respond to people and that as well. So it is an incredibly intensive activity. Um, yeah, it is very all-encompassing. One aspect I find a bit scary is um, the investment you make in it. Because the more you post, the more you build it up, the more followers you get. Mm. You can't stop. Because if you stop, what has it all been for? Yes, and there's a sort of reciprocal relationship that you seem to build with these other people as well. A kind of, I don't know, I think it's really interesting when people take a, a sort of period of absence for whatever reason. When they return, there's often an apology. People say, I'm really sorry for being away, you know, I, I've missed you. And there's often a real outpouring of um, sort of gratitude for people returning to the platform from their, their kind of fellow network users. So there is the, kind of, I suppose, an emotional link seems to be created as well between between these different users, which again is fascinating. But I suppose when you when you think about it, 
And this really struck me when I was doing it every day that often some of these faces you see more than your best friends. You kind of wake up in the morning and you open Instagram and, oh, there's so-and-so again. Oh, they look nice. Even if you're not sort of sending them messages, I think just seeing people's faces that regularly creates a some sort of emotional relationship that's very difficult to just throw away. And yeah, when you've done it every day for however long, it, it does feel like a bit of a thing just to throw away. What's it been for? You know, It's interesting what you said about um, how the electronic version, the online version of your life might become more important than your regular life. And I think that's certainly the case where the image you portray online can be so curated, so planned. Mm. Uh, You're wearing such and such in front of such and such. You're standing up straight. You've picked out the exact photo you want to use. You might have touched it up a bit. I'd never do that, fans. Um, But that image you portray there is entirely different from other places in life. I mean, you can even write a caption that is so witty and funny that you're never that good in reality no and i think this idea of having a curated life is is the sort of the thing to do i mean I, I suppose there's different levels of this you could have a an instagram account where you wore stuff that you would never wear in the offline world that's sort of very different from you all the way through to it sort of is a fair representation but as you say it's styled and it's the right photo it's the right caption it, it's sort of you plus somehow it's a slightly elevated version when you meet people offline and they've only ever met you online, I always think it's a little bit sort of nerve-wracking. There's an expectation almost that you'll be the same, even though everybody knows that it's different. And you often get comments and hashtags and captions that allude to this. No filter and all of that kind of jazz. But it is strange. And I think the more we consume it, the more we become familiar with the faces and the outfits, the poses, the kind of language used in captions and stuff, We, the more we feel we understand and we know these other people, often when we don't at all. And at some sneaky point, they also turn into influencers. Yes, of course, which is a an interesting and bizarre thing in equal measure. I suppose there's a very grey area about where this starts and where it finishes. Because in some ways, everybody who posts online influences other people in tiny ways i certainly noticed within within this kind of network of people i worked with that you see things and you think oh that's nice i'll you know look out for that brand on ebay or oh i like the way they're standing or and then that runs into the i've been given this hair care product to promote and so on and so forth there's something really interesting about the influencer culture though that somehow because we have this emotive relationship with them because we think there are friends maybe or certainly that we that we know them in some way the power of product promotion is incredibly powerful it sort of seeps in we think oh god they're using that so it must be okay even though we sort of know that they've been paid to do it yet it seems to impact us more profoundly than just seeing it on the news or on tv they might even be following you, which sort of doubles down on the message. Yes, indeed. And I suppose that's the other thing, that because of the way social media works, you don't always quite know who's following who or what's kind of lurking in the shadows. It's one of those strange things where there's more going on than you can see. 
which other people might be able to see as well, because this kind of get these overlapped sort of points of view, I guess. It just suddenly struck me that what would it be like if influencers were working in real life situations, not online, but if you met a friend at a pub, say, and he wanted you to try the hair care product <laughs> he'd been paid to promote. I suppose it's a little bit like an Avon lady or something, that kind of uh, slightly odd transactional relationship with sort of some elements of familiarity. But uh, yeah, it, I don't think it would be the same somehow. I don't know why. There's something dodgy, isn't there, about someone opening their suitcase in a pub with an array of things in to, to sort of sell. It's basically the start of Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels where they're selling stuff out of a suitcase. It is, yeah. But to thousands of people at the same time. Mm. And sort of a lot of the time not really signalling that that's what they're doing. No, indeed. And I mean, that is in the news quite a lot at the moment, isn't it? About the, you know, whether the stuff is tagged as being paid advert or not. But it's, uh, I don't know. I, I think... Some people are becoming quite wise to it, and there's almost an expectation that if something's being actively pushed, there must be some sort of costing in there somewhere. But it's easy to forget. And one of the, I suppose, brilliant and terrible things about Instagram is it's so lush, it's so colourful and pictorially bright, and it's a nice thing to look at. But we sort of forget about everything that goes on behind the scenes. You just see that picture, and you know it's taken the person six hours to pose it beautifully and but somehow we forget that. It sort of slips into the, into the past somehow. I'm just suddenly struck by an incredible sadness. <laughs> oh. But let's get back to, I mean, you obviously had a keen interest in clothes before you started this project. Was this something that started as a young lad or? I, I think it was, yeah. I've, I've always been interested in, in clothes I, and I I mean I'm told stories that as a as a baby I would only wear particular trousers apparently I had a pair of sort of navy blue with a red stripe that I was just wedded to and I hated sort of as a smaller child I hated anything that was denim or kind of stiff or rough or I think there's always been a a kind of touch related relationship with clothes for me and then certainly towards the end of school when I was at sixth form we moved from wearing uniform, we were allowed to wear suits in, in sixth form. And I think that became a very defining sort of moment of identity, really, that you could dress in a slightly unusual way or a slightly different way. We were still quite um, fixed about how we could dress and, you know, all that. It was fairly strict in that way. But, I mean, I, I had a three-piece suit and I had a pocket watch and it felt like there was this sort of shift suddenly in, oh, you look a little bit different, but you still sit within this sort of framework of, appropriate dress if that's a, a good way of putting it formal dress I suppose might be a better way of thinking about it um, and then certainly as I left and went to university it, it became more a part of my life I began to be interested in all sorts of stuff uh, and I think probably passed through various phases of interest I had a period I was really interested in kind of Vivian Westwood stuff and then moved to being more interested in kind of a slightly more alternative <laughs> I don't know. It seems to kind of flex with the times. I've always had an interest in it. There's something kind of exotic about, I suppose, particularly expensive clothes, that are kind of luxurious and exotic, which is very desirable for me. But there's also something about how it makes you look and how it changes how you look. And I've always really hated looking like everybody else as well, which I, I always feel sometimes I fall into. You think, oh, God, no, I need to put something else on. 
there's something for me about that being able to craft your identity, even if you're just a little bit different by what you wear. Um, and I feel like I've found brands along the way that do that for different points in my life. And then I tend to sort of live in that particular garment or, you know, clothes, shoes, whatever, for a period and then find something new. It's sort of evolving, maybe. But when I started the research for this book, suits became the, the total focus. I'd always been interested in kind of tailoring and handmade stuff and, you know, that idea. And within anthropology, more generally, there's lots of stuff written about kind of clothing and adornment and about weaving and not not in Savile Row, but, you know, about how people might make cloth in Africa or how people might, you know, dress in a, an indigenous community. So all of those kind of threads were there, but I was interested in refocusing that in a new context. Uh, but, yeah, suits, gosh, I mean, it's a fascinating field for so many reasons. Uh, everything from kind of you know, boring pinstripe two-button suits through to something bizarre and made of larvae that's been made for some sort of rock star, they're still sort of the same garment, and yet they're sort of not. So that crafting of identity through this garment that sits on this historical lineage from military dress through to city wear is, yeah, has become the obsession for this book. So were you into tailoring and so forth before you started? Because for me, I mean, wandering down Savile Row, I'll walk slowly and I'll peek in the windows down into the basements where mm. the good stuff's happening. You'd not find me opening the door and going in. It seems so prohibitive. It is very prohibitive, yeah. I mean, I think for that reason, sort of tailoring in terms of suits was never something I was particularly into, apart from when I was sort of, you know, had to wear things for for school and stuff. But I it kind of coats and those kind of slightly sort of broader ideas of tailoring have always fascinated me. I do love a good coat. And I suppose those kind of places were inaccessible to me, both financially and for lots of other reasons as well. And it was through kind of secondhand stuff and places like eBay and other websites, as well as kind of secondhand vintage shops. But I started to find and acquire garments that sort of became more tailored. But I, I think it was also by looking beyond Savile Row as well in London that I found tailors who were much more willing to chat to me when I started to do research. I mean, people like Mark Powell and Joshua Kane were, were very welcoming and were happy to chat. I mean, Geeves and Hawks in London is also one that was happy to talk to me, but lots of them are much more closed and closeted and it's difficult to get in and feels very intimidating. So I think there's a balance to be struck there in this work, that it's not only about the kind of the hyper sort of swish and very formal saddle road, but it's also about the more general notions of handmade clothes and also expensive clothes, I suppose, that sit within this sort of broad pot of objects that help meant to present themselves in a particular way i think probably the, the last bit you mentioned there where the, the the price the expense of it all is what keeps a lot of people away from it uh if you're going to be spending sort of the cost of a decent second-hand car on a single suit well you have to be able to afford it you do yeah absolutely and particularly in a in a world of kind of moths and, you know, sugary biscuits that radically change your body type. I, th I think, you know, for some people, that's not so much of a problem. For me, I love a biscuit. And because I spend so much of my time sat down writing and stuff, it 
you sort of think, well, is that practical? I don't know. It does become incredibly prohibitive, but both sort of tailors will argue that it'll last so much longer and that it's a more eco-friendly garment and, you know, that it's handmade, it can be remade and it has all of these amazing other properties that you don't get with sort of designer or ready-to-wear clothes. But it is incredibly expensive. Now, we can't escape from that, unfortunately. But you mentioned you'd been to Jeeves and Hawkes, which is, of course, a known Savile Row tailor, and also Mark Powell and Joshua Kane. What would you say the prime difference is between those sort of levels of bespoke? I think in, in terms of the actual quality, people like Mark Powell and Jeeves and Hawkes are probably fairly similar. It's more to do with the sort of style, I suppose, and I use that word carefully. Tailors tend, well, tailors will make anything you want. That's the sort of the joy of it. But tailors also have a look. So on Savile Row, Huntsman's cut is particular. You know, you have high armholes and slightly lower buttoning. They have a particular stance, more structured perhaps than someone like Anderson and Shepherd. So construction may be equivalent but they may take a slightly different route to it and then the styling is one of those things that I style is a difficult thing to nail down but someone like Mark Powell has a particular look it's kind of post neo-Edwardian gangster inspired I, I guess and so if you want something that fits within that kind of style you would go to him he has the eye to be able to do pockets with that particular kind of look sort of stance those kind of features that wouldn't be sort of unusual to him maybe a bit out of the box for someone like Gibson Hawks so I think it's about aligning yourself with a with a house or a brand or a particular style that you feel comfortable with or that you want to attach yourself to in some way and this certainly became apparent for me as I sort of sat in these tailor shops did this research instagrammed away people gravitate into different directions. And what's the joy of this bespoke tailoring is that you can have anything you want. You could have a, a lime green velvet suit in, you know, if you wanted. But I think people tend to feel an affinity with a particular brand and gravitate in that way. It seems very unusual for someone to be so different to the house's look. So I suppose within all of this, there's this tribal idea that we want to belong even if we want to be different, we still want to belong to a group of like-minded, different people. And so you get these kind of cliques of people who have a particular look. And this became really apparent when I started to go to some of the fashion shows of these tailors. I went to a couple of Joshua Kane shows and um, to Sir Tom Baker shows as well. And you get people who sort of look like the models in the audience. There's almost this reflected look of people <laughs> trying to dress like the tailor and like the brand. It's most peculiar. But it's, it's sort of wonderful as well. It's like a little microcosm of a particular style. It sounds like you could, always map it. You could also almost map it onto sort of class, uh, political position, uh, of course, wealth, tradition, heritage. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, there's all of these kind of underlying discussions, as you've mentioned, you know, about how we construct ourselves not everybody can construct themselves as they would want to. That's, it's not always feasible. And certain tailors will create an atmosphere that's more welcoming or more prohibitive. And that will be attractive to different people. 
And then it sits within a wider narrative of how we dress as men and what that means and where that fits within our employment and our social life and all of these kind of aspects. And as someone who's, I suppose, fundamentally a social scientist, that's what's really interesting about clothes, that they're not just something we pop on in the morning to keep us warm and to keep the rain off us. They form a facet of who we are and they broadcast something about us. They say a hell of a lot about who we are or who we want to be. Do you think as a scientist saying something like that, you are a lot more attuned to broadcasting who you are than someone you just meet on the street? I don't know. I I suppose I've spent a lot of time thinking about it, and it does feel something I'm very attuned to. Although equally, I think it's perhaps because I'm attuned to it, I'm not always the best at doing it, if that makes sense. I'm not sure if that does make sense. But I sometimes feel like, because I know that you have to consciously construct yourself, I'm not always that good at obeying those rules. And sometimes I would rail against it and do something different. But I am also conscious, perhaps overly conscious, that within certain settings I need to present myself in particular ways. So if I'm teaching, for example, I will dress perhaps slightly more formally than I would if I was just sitting on Zoom in a meeting. But then it depends what sort of meeting it was. I I think being able to navigate the social world in which we live through the way we dress is important. But I think what you're saying here is that, that your message isn't pure. You're manipulating it because you know what goes into it. So when you're going to be in front of students, you're wearing your brown corduroy jacket. Or is it dark green? Dark green, but, you know, close. (laughs) Yes. No, I I think I would agree with you. But I think people do this anyway, and I don't think my sort of special academic knowledge really matters a great deal. Because I think people know this anyway, and some people don't, and I think it trips people up sometimes. But we have this whole sort of set of codes, rules, practices that sit within the society in which we live that we kind of know, you know, if you get an invitation for something and it says black tie, you don't go in, I don't know, a T-shirt. Certain places force us to dress in certain ways, whether there's an entrance policy or whether there's a just a particular atmosphere. And we know or we get the sense that certain forms of dress will help us in certain places to be taken more seriously or or not so whilst i think i'm very attuned to this because i think about it a lot i think lots of other people are aware of it perhaps almost everybody's aware of it but it's more instinctive than sort of analytical Mm. i'm not quite sure how i sort of think about that because i think i mean when i was a teenager I'd say buy a jacket because that was a cool jacket and I'd wear it. But I wouldn't sort of be cognizant of being signalling anything other than that I've got a cool jacket. Now that I'm older and hopefully a little wiser, I have a whole array of jackets and I have the problem of what to wear, going where. It just becomes a bit of a problem, really. Well, I think the the notion of cool is just fascinating, and that is part of our social structure anyway. Being able to navigate cool is as much a a thing as anything else. Knowing that a particular set of outfits, a particular garment from a particular maker and a particular colour will make you cool or special, or at least you think so, is all part of that. But yes, I I think as as we age and we acquire more things, it can be more challenging. 
there is also something that we ha we have to touch upon, and that is the difference between being cool for Instagram and being cool when whilst wandering among, should I say, civilians mm. who really don't give a toss what you're wearing and would only have noticed you if you'd forgotten to wear trousers. Yes. Yeah. And I think this is all about appealing to that network you reside within on Instagram. Because we sort of play to the gallery. We, we present stuff on Instagram we think other people will like, I think. Or some people do. Perhaps lots of people do. Because it's really disheartening to get one like. It's, it, it sort of feels like we haven't done enough or we haven't done what we need to do. But that'll be different depending on who your followers are and who kind of watch you. And I think even if we don't engage with that cognitively and think, oh, I need to change my outfit now for this, maybe there's something subconscious in that as well. That relationship between Instagram and sort of garment or dress modification over time. But yes, you're quite right. On the street, in, in the real world somehow, there's a, a very different idea of what cool is. And equally different groups will think of it differently. I'm sure my perception of cool is radically different to lots of people's. I imagine it would be. Uh, I mean, as we present ourselves on Instagram, we're all individuals. And whenever you're asked about, well, what is your style? Well, it's sort of hard to define, really. It's a bit of this, a bit of that. It's very much my own. Mm. But I think that's something that we all perhaps think that we're a lot more special than we might actually be. Yes, I think that is true. There's something very human about wanting to think that we're individuals and not part of a, a grander sort of society or grander culture. And I think for people who are invested in clothing in, in whatever way, whether it's people who are sneakerheads or whether it's people who have their Savile Row tailor or everything in between, if they are the two ends of the spectrum, which I'm not sure they are, there's a sort of sense that by buying something or by owning something or dressing in a particular way, that makes me an individual. But it doesn't, of course. It perhaps makes you part of a group that would like to think of themselves as individuals. But there's still links being made there with other people. And, and I suppose those people may not be people you know amongst those civilians, if you like, to use your term, that you meet in everyday life. But when you start Instagramming, you find that there's other people out there who are sort of look like you. It's kind of reflected gaze there, which is kind of weird. But perhaps there's something nice about that as well. That realization that maybe we're not that individual after all, but it's there's other people out there like me. And I think whilst Instagram, when you think about it too much, can be a, a slightly sad place, there's something quite joyful about being able to make those links and relationships throughout the world with this strange platform. It certainly is interesting to make the world a, a smaller place. Um... I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean we're having deep interactions or meaningful interactions with people far away, but it's sort of just an awareness. We see a little bit of their daily life, which might help a bit. Yeah, and I think that thing about deep interactions is really interesting because we don't, do we? I, I certainly am not good at having long, meaningful interactions with people on Instagram. It's That's not really what the platform's for. You might get a little question or a little like or a little kind of comment, but... It's not like meeting someone and talking to them in the offline world. It's not like having a telephone call. It's not like we're talking to each other now. It's a very different form of communication. 
now there's good things to that and there's bad things to that i suppose and it's it's great that it allows us to meet these people and make those interactions and present ourselves in a particular way there's something interesting and perhaps useful about demonstrating a curated part of life to the world helps us think about ourselves in a different way but i think there's also something there that when we start to unpick it really exposes some of the perhaps shortfallings and how we've begun to interact in this increasingly digitized world in which we live that making everything as easy and as convenient as possible has lost some of that more in-depth interaction and so everything becomes very visual particularly on instagram of course which is good you know nice to look at pretty pictures but when you drill down to it the visual i think becomes all-encompassing it becomes very sort of visually tactile and so we lose a lot of the conversations and a lot of those interactions that actually might make us feel like we belong in other places or in other spaces don't know but it's a sort of a strange thing and, and i suppose the nature of all of these digital platforms is that they're constantly changing and shifting even though that might happen quite slowly within a particular network yeah well i think you're onto something there because Instagram, with its focus on images, is very dumbed down compared to emailing and so forth. And my comparison there is that I've been running a, a forum for a certain brand of car for the past 27 years or so now. And that has always been text only. In recent years, you can actually add a little photo, little avatar to your profile. But until then, you were known as your name and email address mm. and you were known for what you wrote which gave tremendous insight i mean lots of wonderful people i've got to know through that and respected them because they were able to write but uh, i see a lot on instagram where there's a photo but there's not even a caption mm. so it's just and i think yeah, i think the there's some image is what i had yeah and the image is a fascinating thing in, in the book i talk about the image as a kind of form of discourse and this is a sort of a post-Foucauldian thing. But it, the, the point is that the image becomes that way in which we connect with people, but also the way in which we tell a story and tell the world something about who we are and everything. Uh, when I started doing this research on Instagram, there wasn't any sort of video features. You could post a video, but most of the stuff I looked at were just stills. But then towards the end of the research, people um, started using some of the new features that had come in, like Instagram Live and that kind of thing. So you, you heard people for the first time. You heard these voices. And it was really bizarre for me. You know, I'd followed people for sort of a year and a half by this point. And you start to imagine how they walk and what they might sound like. And suddenly you hear it. And it's often quite different to what you think. So I think you're right that the image gives a very different way you it's almost like reading a novel. You think and create parts of that person's character for them. And that's, I mean, that's very odd. But because of that, it goes back to that thing we were talking about earlier about investment. You've sort of helped to create this person's character in your own head. And so because of that, you, you feel they're part of you. Because I suppose really they are. Yeah, it's strange you mentioned Instagram Live there because... Um... I feel that it's a very, very intimate uh, thing where you're looking at someone transmitting live, maybe talking to someone else live, and it's like you're peeking in their window <laughs> mm. 
and you see their mannerisms and hear them and their message and they don't really know that you're listening in apart from there's a little thing that says you joined and you might have left at some time but it is and it's a kind of well i suppose there's a caveat here in that now sort of in 2022 having had two years of lots and lots of people across the world working online with zoom and teams and various other video calling pieces of software we've become quite familiar with seeing into other people's homes and meeting their cat and having their dog bark constantly in every meeting and seeing their partners and their children and their decor and those things I think were quite alien really certainly when I was doing this research which was pre-pandemic so to see into people's homes and lives in such an intimate way you know you're being held in their hand a foot away from their face that's the sort of distance that you'd only usually get if you're romantically involved with someone or something had gone terribly wrong in a car crash or something. But it, it's an incredibly intimate place to be, sort of right there with them. Or even if the camera's flipped, you're almost seeing through their eyes live at what they're doing. So I, I think you're absolutely right. It is a, a strange and intimate thing. That, of course, creates these incredible relationships, incredible bonds between people, because they feel they are part of your life then you could argue that they are, I guess. But it is odd. Uh, and I think those shattering of barriers and, and those erosions of offline notions of intimacy can be problematic. It, it can create strange sort of ways of thinking about the world that we should be able to access people's lives and people's sort of view of the world. I think this is something that often... You know, celebrities with very large numbers to follow was struggle with that need. We've, I mean, we've talked about this earlier. That need for content, that desire to always be seeing what someone's doing, and as you said earlier, you know, even just doing one post a day is a huge investment. But if people have this huge following and they want more of that, I mean, that's a it does take over your life. I was watching this uh, program on TV recently about a British family husband, wife, two little kids, and they were basically full-time influencers. They'd commodified their existence into a product they were presenting almost all the time, every day. Mm. It seemed incredibly tiring. I'm sure it must be. I mean, it, it's, it's one of those strange things because it becomes a sort of secondary existence in, in some way. We pour, for those people, I suppose, everything into that online world but it also impacts the offline because you have to well i don't know in this case but i would imagine sort of keep yourself looking a particular way whether that's having your hair done or going to the gym or eating in a particular way so yeah you commodify your life but it also exerts or the digital part of your life exerts some sort of agency over that offline bit you have to keep up with the with the digital keep up with that other bit of you I mean, I suppose there's something sort of mirror of Dorian Gray about this in some way, but that kind of double existence must be awful. Well, I just think about the difference between going for a walk or going for a trip and whether I'm creating digital content mm. while doing so or just enjoying a day out. Yeah. I mean, in, in the book, I talk about this second digital self, and this is my sort of way of conceptualising this, that the 
you almost split yourself, which is a bit Harry Potter and Horcruxy, but you, you sort of do split yourself into this digital version of yourself, which is slightly different, curated, it dresses and speaks in a particular way, and this offline, and they're compartmentalizable to a certain extent, but they do bleed into each other. And I think when you, I suppose when you start meeting people on that run, and they go, oh, you're not, you're not wearing the clothes you were online a minute ago, those barriers are suddenly exposed. And I suppose we've always, to some extent, thought about other things while we've gone for our walks and gone for our runs, whether it's work or whether it's what's happening in the in a rugby match or you know something else going on in the world at that time. As humans, we think about lots of stuff. We multitask in our heads. But it is quite an odd thing to have this second aspect of our personality sort of imposing on our day-to-day existence. I find it quite stressful in a in a minor way that if I'm going to go out with the dogs, I have to be a bit careful what I wear because mm. all the neighbours know of my digital self and will be comparing me. I, I mean, I've had comments like, well, you're not looking so cool now, are you? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, no, sorry. Um, and it, one does feel the need to apologise somehow that one doesn't live up to this obviously created digital version of oneself. But I think it's that thing about regularity that people are perhaps seeing that version of you more than your offline bit. So there is this expectation that that's just what you look like, which is... Well, the neighbours have certainly seen me outside taking photos on a stool in the middle of the road or something. <laughs> so, <laughs> which I think gives me. A fine old laugh. <laughs> but that is, a, I mean, that's a fascinating bit. There's a fantastic account called Influences in the Wild. I don't know if you follow them. I have seen yeah. it, yeah. Which, which highlights that very thing, taking Instagram photos of people taking Instagram photos. And it does expose that something that's been photographed and curated in a very beautiful way in the real world looks ridiculous and takes 45 minutes. And, you know, it, so that immediately, that insta bit of the Instagram is obviously a total concoction as we as we both know but still when we see that picture of you in in the middle of the road on a stool we think oh he looks quite cool so just happened to be sitting there just just happened to have the stool with me <laughs> yeah. now when you started this project you went well can I say pretty hard into Instagram you created an account for the project I did yeah so I, I began really in the offline world totally and just in London sort of doing bits and bobs, you know, starting to find people to talk to and do more traditional anthropological research, really. But yes, I then, I'd been reading a lot of other sort of early digital anthropology from various other anthropologists and I, it, it sort of became apparent to me that often this early work was was considered or was... was more worried with how people use the technology than what people appeared like online. This wasn't always the case, but often it was kind of how people are using it and the impact that has on their offline life. But I wanted to go in and experience it, and I I did. I I sort of set myself this target that I would try and post every day, which I didn't quite manage. But sometimes I posted more than once a day, and it sort of balanced out. And I posted about 800-odd times across two years. So it's, yeah, it's getting on for a bit more than Mm. every day. 
and I became very interested in that as a as a sort of methodological process, a way of understanding what it was like for people who did post that regularly. I mean, before I I began this, I didn't Instagram. I wasn't particularly interested in it. I, you know, and I think in some ways that gave me an objectivity that was able to think about it in a more dispassionate way. So I did go at it hard, and it really did start taking over my life in many ways. But I, hopefully, anyway, think that the book is a is a good sort of catalogue of that and sort of reflects it as a as a worthwhile tool for anthropologists to try and understand what what it's like for people who create content in this way kind of what it means and all the stuff that we've been talking about today but i think for people who don't instagram that regularly don't quite understand those sort of impacts on on the self and the creation of these other cells those interactions we have with people and what that all means i think for so many of us who in the in the world or in the UK, you know, who do use various social media platforms now so regularly, to start to understand that process and what it's really like is is quite important. Sounds to me like you were on the verge of going native and um, turning into a proper gomologist. <laughs> well, possibly. <laughs> uh, it must be it must be hard though um, when you're using an application like Instagram that is so scientifically tuned to giving you the sort of um, the, the hits of likes, uh, the feedback, to maintain the scientific uh, viewpoint, uh, distance. Yes. Well, I, I think for anthropologists, the sort of the, the point of research is that you go and you live somewhere, you live in a space. So traditional anthropologists would go and live with a, an indigenous group somewhere. So they might go into the Amazonian jungle and spend a year living with a with some people there. So for me, actually going into Instagram and creating a, a self there and almost living there felt like I was sort of doing it properly, like it sort of fitted within my discipline. So, and, and yeah, that does come with all of those issues about objectivity and quite how you balance that but by sort of doing it and doing it myself as well as observing what other people were doing I, I think it gave me more insight into the process and the feelings and the the relationship with the the phone and with the garments and everything than I think I would have done if I'd just sort of watched from the shadows. Do you feel like you succeeded in uh, did you build a, a following did you build connections did you did you actually get a sense of being liked i did yes at least i think so um no I, I i did get that sense certainly at the start i i very much didn't get that sense and probably it took nearly 12 months to feel like i was starting to make links with people uh, i think part of that was that i wasn't presenting myself in the right way i, I hadn't really learned how it worked and what i needed to do in terms of hashtags particular types of image what was included kind of when they were posted you know all the all of the instagram stuff that took me a long time to kind of get and i think i didn't know who i was looking for either i knew there were people out there who were posting pictures of themselves but i, I hadn't really realized how connected they were um which does become apparent when you're sort of more in that space that there's this kind of reciprocity of interaction um but yes by by year two it became apparent that I was connecting with people, that I was getting kind of comments, reciprocating them, you know, starting to make those relationships. But yeah, it takes time. Um, certainly took me time anyway. It's interesting because the, the aspects you mentioned there were 
really quite technical aspects about the sort of type of image, when to post and so forth. Whilst really a lot of what it's about now is what I'd describe as social manipulation. That if you want to become one of the, the big dogs, you have to invest in a lot of personal time, effort, uh, the commenting, the uh, fire fit bro comments, uh, <laughs> the liking, and you have to sort of really creep on people, which I find deeply uncomfortable. And I just can't do all this. If I'm going to write a comment, it has to be something genuine. I'm not just circling around, throwing away yeah. rubbish comments. Uh, no, I, I would agree with you. And I, th- I think I-, I was quite conscious that I, I didn't want to lose all of that that you've talked about, that sort of authenticity of of me as a as a researcher, but as someone who was genuinely interested in these things, wanting to make connections with like-minded people in order to sort of find out what it was like. I didn't just want to kind of bomb in and think, oh, right, this is what it's like, and then sort of disappear again. I, I genuinely wanted to invest and make those connections and, uh, and find out what it was like. And I would say that the stuff I post on and the way in which I do it is is a fair reflection of kind of how I think and how I am, I hope. Although, of course, there is some element of presentation and concocted reality because that's what it's like. But I think partly because of that, I almost needed to do a, a sort of Instagram apprenticeship to kind of creep in slowly for people to know that I I was authentic, that I was real. And, and I think that a lot of the people I, I ended up sort of being friends with and interacting with uh, seem to steer away from all of that kind of Instagram pomp as well uh, and f- feels are more genuinely authentic about liking things they do like and not sort of just trying to create um, popularity I suppose so I think in order to kind of mirror um, the people I was interested in I, I had to behave in a particular way but in some ways that felt much more natural. I don't think I'd be very good at all the the bro thing. <laughs> well, I, I suppose the, what you're saying is really it's just sort of the human intelligence, the way we mirror each other and get to know each other. The odd thing was that I realised when you posted uh, a photo of your book uh, two, three weeks ago that I had actually been following you for, for ages. <laughs> Yes. I don't know if we ever interacted much. but I, uh, I don't know if we did, but likewise, I've followed you for a long time as well. And, and I think that's that's one of the really interesting things, that we have you know a vision into each other's lives, having perhaps never talked or corresponded or even messaged in any way. Uh, and I think that's quite nice as well, that there's that link that may be picked up at some point or, or may never be. But there's that shared interest without the need to be talking, maybe. Maybe that's a sad thing to say but I think there's something quite nice about the sharing of something sort of that's aesthetic Now I noticed a point you mentioned in the book was um, who owns the images we post and this was in relation to the reposting phenomena Mm. Yes and I think this is a fascinating idea There's, I, I certainly got the impression from uh, some that if you posted an image wearing a particular designer or tailor's clothes, there was a feeling that that image maybe didn't belong to them, but that they had the the right or the, the permissions to repost it and to use it as one of their images, which is interesting and probably doesn't 
fit with modern data laws and all of that. But I think, I mean, I think Instagram owns the images fundamentally, don't they? That's the the sad reality of these sort of platforms. Mm -hmm. I think that would be their argument. But more personally, when we think about this creation of this second identity, this other bit of ourselves that goes online, for then someone to pick it up and almost claim ownership of it feels weird. I, I had this in the book I write about this with Mark Powell. I post a picture in one of his suits that he reposts, which is fan- fabulous. You know, he's acknowledged that that image is worthy to be pictured on his social media. That's a great affirmation, but equally, th- there wasn't a conversation about whether that was okay. So there's a sort of theft of that bit of second self in some way. And, and for me, this didn't happen a lot because I'm not usually famous but i can imagine for celebrities and for people whose images are you know out there and are being consumed and reused and reposted and maybe edited and manipulated without their consent that that must be a huge sense of loss a huge sense that that bit of your life isn't within your own control anymore sorry to interrupt but at this point in the pod you're probably wondering where are the ads i miss the ads And you're right, there are no ads. I hate ads. If you'd like to buy me a coffee, though, you can go to buymeacoffee.com, enter Gomology, and it's easy. And, uh, yeah, let's continue on. Very interesting what you're saying there, because my take on it is kind of 180 degrees different. Ah. (laughs) Because the way I see it, when people do that, um, typically they'll post on their story so that they can tag in a way that the person being tagged will notice it. It is a call for recognition. They want to be noticed. So if I posted a photo of myself wearing something special, I want the maker to see it and I want them to repost it because that reflects well on me. That's a big flex Mm. for me. Once they've reposted it, then I'll repost that again because then I can brag about, wow, look, not only did I have this jacket and they they reposted it, look at me. Mm. So this is weird social interaction, transaction going on. It is. And for me, there's a sort of unspoken set of rules going on here as well that I think we do sign up to. We know that this happens. It's uh, and Usually we're quite happy for it. But I've also seen and sort of observed and talked to people about interactions where they find pictures of themselves that have been picked up, posted, or, or even whole accounts made in their sort of image that they haven't even sort of tacitly acknowledged as being okay. That's a total sort of, it feels like a theft of that either intellectual visual property or somehow a theft of self. So I think you're right, we do sort of, permit it and expect it to some degree, but there's also a, a line there where it becomes something else. Yeah, there's, there's sort of two angles on that, though. Uh, one would be, I, I'd be really delighted if someone started a, a fan account <laughs> and, and reposted my photos. I mean, wow, how cool would that be? They obviously really like me. But there have been a couple of times when someone has stolen my photos and set up a sort of sugar daddy account. Mm. And then started messaging young girls, yeah. which is not cool at all. No, very much not. And whilst obviously it's nothing to do with you and it's out of your power, they're using your image and 
particularly when those images are the thing people think about you, that becomes, I mean, it's a character assassination, isn't it, at the least? And at the most, I suppose it's sort of, well, an assault on who you are in some ways. Of course, there's also the sort of validation of that someone thought that my images could help them well, and yeah. young ladies. <laughs> there is that, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is equally important. But and I think this is the difficult and tricky thing about social media that there's the feeling that if it's picked up at all, that's a positive, even if it isn't necessarily always. I think, like anything of this sort, and like so many things in the book, it's never clear cut. It's never just one thing or the other. It's often a slightly grey area. But that is the world in which we live now. I would like to see a breakdown of the differences between people who use social media a lot, especially the forms of social media that promote themselves heavily. Mm. Not so much Twitter, say, where people just argue. Yes. Uh, But the sort of one where you're putting yourself in focus and the sort of people who don't go for it at all and what sort of experience they have of it mm, that would be fascinating do you mean in terms of people who who post and sort of interact and people who just watch or people who don't have anything to do with it well i think my brother-in-law isn't on any social media and i'm uncertain whether he consumes it but he certainly doesn't participate or mm. offer up anything yeah one of the things I did whilst I was doing this research is I, I took a, well, it was an unconscious break, but I took a break from it, which is primarily because I dropped my phone and it all went it all went wrong. But I had, I had a couple of, I sort of started with this break because I couldn't get on. And then I thought, well, actually, this is quite an interesting thing. Let's consciously take a month off and see how that feels. And it was quite um, an enlightening period of, well, we might call it digital detox, but let's call it a methodological tool it was an interesting period there was the sense of loss to start with and then a sort of quite nice period of actually i don't have to think about this thing i'm not constantly looking at it or picking it up or feeling it vibrate in my pocket or it it did feel like a weight being lifted but then towards the end of that period as i knew i wanted to pick it up again there was a real sense of anxiety of oh god you know how am i going to do this again are people still going to be following am I going to have offended anybody by sort of just dropping away and not, not saying that I was going to be gone? How am I going to sort of pick this up again? What am I going to wear? What, all of those questions started to spiral again. So I can imagine for those who, who have never indulged that it must be a quite a nice sort of place to be without any of that hassle. But I suppose you wouldn't know. That's the, that's the paradox. Yes, hard to do really scientific research on that. I did wonder when you said the feeling you had as you sort of left social media for a period. I'm wondering, is that because you might have felt that the investment you'd put in would now not be taken care of so that you might be losing out on something or I I think I think there were several things. I don't think I thought that, you know, my my second self, Anthro Dandy, wouldn't be okay because I knew he'd be he'd be all right. I didn't have that sort of. Um, I thought he could look after himself. That I wasn't worried about that. I did have. Um, I was worried about followers, 
I suppose, being conscious that this was a, a project in which I was trying to you know, interact with people and how that was going to work. But I was also interested to see whether there was any follower loss through that period and you know, whether that reflected that lack of activity. I, I think I was more worried about those social interactions um, and that sense that if you weren't constantly producing stuff, somehow you weren't fulfilling those unwritten rules of, of the network, of the group. I think that's what that's what weighed most heavily. You're not bringing home the dinner if you're not posting. Well, quite. And whilst the character or the, the, the self doesn't disappear, they're still there, they sort of stagnate somehow if there's not a mm. constant stream. They, don't conti- they sort of live in some sort of isolation. There's no continuation of life. Limbo. Limbo, that's a very good word. That's what I was searching for. Yeah, it is that. That kind of hanging in sort of suspended animation. Yeah. I find that when I'm in the sort of loop of producing something new every day, it becomes such a, a huge part of my day and, say, night when I'm trying to get to sleep and I'm sort of planning, I have to come up with some grand idea for the day after. Mm-hmm that it becomes really quite exhausting and getting out of that loop and just treading water, posting old photos. Mm. Uh, Well, I mean, just treading water and not posting anything. After a few days, that becomes very, very nice Mm. because (laughs) there's that whole chunk of energy you're not using on it. Yes. But then you sort of get into it by posting old photos again, scanning the camera roll for something that can be reused. And then you sort of get into that again, and it it's a nightmare, really. I mean, I can't imagine what it really does to us as humans. Mm. I mean, uh, yes, quite. And I, I suppose we're, not us, but the sort of, there will be generations for which this is almost normal, that that's just part of life. And it's, it's not something that they've happened upon sort of later in life. And I think for them, it's probably slightly different again. But yes, who knows what it does to us. I think all of the kind of tactile stuff of just using a phone sort of in a repetitive way becomes quite addictive as well. You sort of, I don't know, it becomes almost muscle memory, all that kind of scrolling through camera rolls and stuff, which I I don't know, maybe that doesn't do us any harm. But it, it, that part of it is also something that feels quite difficult to leave. You must feel yourself doing it on your leg without the phone. I... I'm very concerned about the way we use social media, but I see that, say, Facebook and Instagram have an older audience because I see the teenagers now, they're all on Snapchat or something that I don't even know what is. But And they're not even sort of... When I look at my Instagram account, I see I've posted over 4,000 images, which seems like an extraordinary amount of Mm. photos. But the way the kids are using it, they're not even saving the photos. They're just, oh, seen it, gone. Yeah. I mean, the way in which digital images have just swamped our lives is astonishing. I, mean, I did a, I had a class last semester about 21st century communication, and this was something I talked about. That you know, on my phone, I've got God knows how many, sort of like 40,000 images, sort of sat in the cloud, ready to look at. You know, imagine that in a room, just in hard copy. It's just unbelievable. And uh, yeah, most of them will be repeats, and you know random shots of strange things and all sorts. But the way people use these devices is changing. 
you see this in class at the moment. You know, you write something on the board and people get their phones out to take a picture of it. It's used as a, a kind of repository for memory, as a, a way of, you know, like a compact mirror, a way of communicating in, in a way that was never sort of possible before. And yeah, it's, it is concerning and it is strange and terrifying, but I suppose that's all part of being human, isn't it? Embracing kind of new technologies and seeing what happens with them. I was I was thinking about your was it four or forty thousand images on your phone because if you're a hardcore Instagram, of course, ninety nine percent of those images will be of yourself. Well, that, yes. <laughs> what does that say? I know that is such a good point, and they are, and they, you get these kind of when you flick back through your camera roll, you think, oh yeah, 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 and you could sort of do swipe after swipe of basically all the same image taken from slightly different angles to try and highlight, I don't know, your neckerchief or whatever that happens to be the thing you want to be showing that day but yeah you, you do get this almost it's it's like some sort of strange diary of your life taken in little square photos it's most peculiar in 10 or 12 versions of each one yeah absolutely so how hard is it is it to delete the 11 you don't post <laughs> well you just don't do you I, and I, i'm not sure why but it, it seems very hard to let go of those I think there is something about knowing that at some point in the future you may come back and post something again in a slightly different angle. But it is, yeah, it does take over those sort of depositories. I remember years and years ago when I was first starting out uh, Instagramming and one of my kids saw that I had a folder on my laptop called Selfies. Mm. And it was like, Daddy, you're taking selfies? Uh. <laughs> it's odd isn't it because when when the sort of the phrase was coined and people started taking selfies on you know terrible old phones it was seen as i don't know not very cool and a bit kind of squeamish and a bit nasty but it's become such a part of the world we see they're everywhere aren't they so much so that they're often not even really seen as selfies anymore they're sort of I don't know, a body shot of some sort it's not always about the face. It's about lots of other things. Yeah. So after two years in the field as a hardcore Instagrammer, domologist, style icon, at least aspiring to, what was it like to sort of say, well, that's it, closing up shop, I'm done? It was really hard, actually. It was very hard to let it go. Um, I finished my offline research first and then sort of moved moved away from London but kept Instagramming kept that bit on for a bit longer and then I set um I sort of set myself a line in the sand that I thought right I'm going to do this many posts and that's it and I couldn't really do it I drew that line in the sand and that became the sort of the succinct body of research that then goes into the book. But I did continue to do it and I continued to create content. And I think some of the best photos I've posted are from after that period, which I found really irritating that you sort of, you've almost got to the point where you've started creating stuff that you think is okay. So that was all a bit frustrating and a bit difficult. And it, it sort of gradually petered out um, and became less frequent. I think because there wasn't that sort of impetus to keep doing it. But what I, I really struggled with, that I, I couldn't really seem to find a midway 
by the end of that kind of petering out, I could either actively produce or, or sort of not. I wanted to get to a point where I sort of just did it irregularly, and but I found that very challenging. And now I tend to go through periods of creating or not creating, and there's not really a, a balance, which is probably not ideal, but it seems to seems to be okay, I think. But yes, it was difficult, difficult to step away because there's a there's that expectation that is sort of going on in the background and, and you get those prompts from people of, oh, you know, that was nice. And even from stuff you've posted some time ago, you're getting interaction with. So it, it feels difficult. It was difficult to step away. And uh, that's something I write about in the book as well. I think for people who sort of follow this and do Instagram research, planning an exit strategy is really important because it's not as easy as just turning it off. At least not if you've been sort of sucked into it well and proper and have built up lots of contacts. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you just one day say, well, thanks, chums, it's been fun. Uh, I've been studying you now for two years. Uh, don't hate me when I'm gone. Well, quite. And, and this is the conversation I had with myself, and I, I really wasn't sure how to go about it. So the kind of gradual um, decrease and then the occasional interaction was sort of what I went with. I mean, anthropologists are lucky in the sense that we often return to our field sites anyway across whole careers and, and continue to research with that with that group and on that topic. So I equally, I didn't want to just do the sort of mic drop, go away thing. It was it was important I kept some some sense of that second self alive and kept that place available to return to. And I think you're right, just by sort of piecing out, it's not a good way of keeping those relationships alive. When you were posting uh, regularly, was your posting related to how much new clothes you were getting? Because mm. that's something I see as, I mean, I'm massively more inspired if I have something new and cool to show. Uh, I have to admit, a lot of stuff, once I've shown it, I might lose interest, mm. which is, makes me a terrible person, I know. I, I think, but I do notice a lot of the guys I follow. I mean, their turnover on new stuff, massive. Yeah, I am definitely an equally terrible person. I I totally understand, and I think that was a big thing for me. That if you buy something, it's so easy to say, "Oh, I've just bought this," in a picture of it, sort of on its own, and then incorporating it into a couple of outfits, and that's three or four posts sorted. To that did fire a lot of what I did. And I did try and get away from that and kind of construct looks and items from things I already had. But I bought a huge amount of stuff over those two years, vast amounts. And that became part of, yeah, part of that kind of character and that account. And it seems to me that that is part of it as well. You're absolutely right. You see people whose turnover is huge. You know, every week seems to be a different suit or a different outfit. And I'd, I'm not always sure how that works, whether these are people who work in shops so they can do that or whether they're hired or whether people just spend vast amounts of money. Well, it has been the case for, I know, young, say, teenage girls who will order stuff or buy stuff and then promote it or show it on their social medias and then return it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so much so that some of these brands have now started putting their tags very visibly. Yes, yeah. So that you couldn't actually wear it or photo it without taking the tag off and hence not being able to return it. I mean, I'm sure there's some of that. Um, and, and there's an interesting kind of narrative here, isn't there, about what that, what, why that sort of body needs to be continually given something new to wear or a new accessory. It is a, it is a funny thing. And 
could it be a similar point to how people, when they see a nice car, will sit down beside the car and have their photo taken of it, even though it's not their car? I think it may be, yeah. It, um, there is something about the display of those objects, so whether it's clothes or cars or whatever else. Look at how successful and rich and wealthy and cool I am. Yeah, I suppose if you can constantly be demonstrating you're wearing new things, it does project a very wealthy and affluent image, whether that's entirely created from stuff you're sending back or not. Thinking about this now makes me want to just close up my account. Oh, I'm sorry. This is is not me at all. Uh, I mean, I try to... It would be so easy just to post photos of clothes every day, Mm. which is why I try to do something a little more interesting, uh, be a good... um, promote good values, sustainability, Mm. reusing, vintage, um, and also writing a caption that will either be interesting or funny. I'm not sure it's always taken as that, but <laughs> that's my intention at least. But but there's something about that being then a sort of projection of you, isn't there? That there's that authenticity about you want to have that character in a particular way, which I think is really important because so much of what we see on Instagram is, is just image with very little caption or some banal, you know, I don't know. It's feeling hot or something, and then a suit. You think, well, what does it mean? It doesn't, you know. I, I like all of the kind of process stuff. I mean, following sort of tailors and makers, I find fascinating as well, where you see kind of what they're working on laid out in its form, and then you might a little later see the person who's bought it, you know, wearing it. it there's that kind of nice relationship as well. But it is a strange thing, and you do wonder how much it fuels the sort of garment industry that's not massively sustainable purely because there's this desire to be seen in these clothes all the time. I mean, do you ever buy stuff that you, you kind of put on and photograph but think, I would never wear that in real life? I am very conscious about not doing that. Mm. Uh, but I do buy stuff that is a bit borderline because I want to challenge myself mm. to be a bit more out there. So when I put on my blue corduroy coat, which... Is quite a risky choice. I feel great. It's my Oscar Wilde coat, mm. but I don't. Uh, I don't post photos of anything that I wouldn't wear that I don't like. That I'm not. That's not me. Mm. Yeah, I've definitely posted things of stuff that looks okay, sort of photograph that I love, but perhaps is a bit tight or, or perhaps doesn't fit that well, or you know that actually, if you wore it out and about on your on your walks. It wouldn't reflect you very well, I suppose. But that on camera, it somehow looks different. I do post photos of clothes that are, in fact, quite unwearable. Mm. You have the the old vintage Swedish uh, army coat, the cold weather M1919 parka, which is lined with about two sheep's worth of sheepskin. I mean, that thing is so heavy, so bulky, that... (laughs) is basically unwearable, yeah. <laughs> but it looks magnificent on photos. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I suppose that's what I mean. I suppose there's, whilst the, there may be people equally who are buying and returning stuff, and that's, you know, that's not real in the sense. There's also something quite nice about letting your online character wear something that actually maybe you don't fit in or is a bit heavy or, I don't know, it's a bit like dressing up a Barbie doll, I suppose. 
it's the difference between having your wardrobe, which is stuff that you just wear whenever, and having your collection. Yes. Not to be um, confused with hoarding, but it's a collection. Mm, definitely. A menswear collection, which is very worthy. It is, yes. I, I like to think of having an archive, which I, I get some stick for. But I, I think it is. It's quite – they're beautiful, tactile garments that are, are, are nice objects to own. And there is something about the acquisition as well, irrespective of the posting of the pictures online, that's quite – I don't know, quite all-encompassing too. Seeing those, or, you know, having, I'm sure everybody, well, not everybody, but I'm sure we both have pieces that we are looking for or have an eye out oh, yes. for. And it's it's that, it is that collecting thing. There's something else there. And then I think showing it off, I suppose, to others as well, somehow. There is a certain type of guy who would like to have a bust in their living room mm. to display choice pieces of menswear on. There is, yes. I must admit, I'm, I can see the attraction, but I can also see that it then makes your front room look like a shop and that there is a fine line to be struck there. Not seeing a problem. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's interesting though, isn't it? And I think menswear is often seen as the poorer cousin of women's wear, particularly in galleries and museums and stuff. There's often exhibitions of of sort of designers' women's wear and stuff, but the men's wear is typically neglected. But it's often incredibly sculptural, beautiful stuff, everything from the fabrics and cuts. And Is it because men's wear tends to be more outdoorsy? I mean, uh, you do have the men's wear archive at which London University is Westminster. it? Westminster. Yes, you do, yeah. Although that's relatively new, I suppose. But... Yes, I don't know why. I think there's um, there's a perception it's boring, which is obviously totally ridiculous. But quite a lot of menswear is quite similar, I suppose. You get a hell of a lot of grey suits. I suppose if you're into suits, you'll see the difference. But perhaps from a, a wider public point of view, maybe that's less engaging. I don't know. I think most people, me included, would need some guidance in how to see them mm. which would be the same for a lot of art yes for example yeah i think with menswear the kind of the interest and the nuance is often smaller you know it may be that the cut or the construction or the the particular cloth or the yeah, something quite niche or maybe even who's worn it whereas i suppose for women's wear it can be much more extravagant and it's not always to say the, the case to say that menswear can't be extravagant but it Perhaps it's more That's obviously aesthetic. More, for menswear, it's more a question of how many pockets does the jacket have. Well, it is, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and to have that... 14 pockets? <laughs> wow. It is, yes. It's often more of a private relationship with the garment that's interesting rather than that public-facing aspect. But you're heavily into suits. I'm not really... I don't really... I couldn't really say that I have a proper suit and certainly not one that's made either for me or to fit me. Mm. Why is it that some people get it and some don't? I'm not sure. I, I am very into suits, but I I don't wear them that regularly either. So again, it's it's more the... I like the, the look and the kind of construction, the detailing, the weight, the sort of... I think I quite like the romance of them as well, that it's 
sort of formal but playful and that it can fit into particular codes of dress and that it harks back to I suppose certain ways of of presenting oneself that are kind of on their way out I think it's all about the jacket for me I, I can sort of take or leave the trouser but I think the the way in which a, a tailored jacket changes the shape of the body is just fabulous the kind of slightly broader shoulders the nipped in waist the, the in anthropology, we're fascinated with this idea of body modification, and that's everything from tattooing through to, you know, inserting stones under your skin and all other sorts of ways of manipulating and changing how we're perceived kind of bodily. And I think the suit jacket does that, trousers as well, of course, but having a something you can pop on and it makes you look that little bit different, that's really sort of engaging for me. That has sort of been traditionally the Savile Row thing, though, hasn't it? It has, yeah. And tailors will tell you that a, a good jacket will take however many inches off your waist and you know make you look that bit taller. And it has, yes. And certain houses will have a, a slightly different way of achieving that. Um, some of the newer tailors, you know, the ones found in Soho and Joshua Cade, people like that. It, I think that's less the aim. It's more about styling. But yes, yeah, still. Tailoring seems to change us, change the way we move and walk and present ourselves. So, yeah, it, it has totally, as you can tell, sort of encaptured me in some way. But I, I would I'd like to make it sort of obvious, I suppose, that I'm not only obsessed with tailoring, but I have other, other clothing-based interests as well, from Japanese avant-garde design through to shoes and everything else. You know, it's a, it is a broad church, but... For this book particularly, it is a focus on tailoring. Tell us more about the other obsessions. That sounded intriguing. Well, I, I think um, one of my, or definitely one of my formative accessory memories, I suppose, is is first going to one of Geoffrey West's shops in uh, in London and seeing kind of shoes that are very pointy and kind of heeled. And I think playing with some of the androgyny of menswear is really interesting and that's that sort of plays into my interest in shoes and accessories and avant-garde design as well but that line between what's traditionally male dress and traditionally female dress can be blurred and so you can get men's shoes that are platformed or heeled or you know in strange fabrics and colors through to stuff that's very heavily distressed you know you think of kind of rick owens t-shirts that aren't hemmed and made of silk through to clothing that's maybe vintage or maybe made to look like vintage, those kind of processes. So I suppose for me, looking beyond those two approaches to gendered clothing and looking in the middle is also something fascinating. And I talk about this in the book as well, a visit to Dover Street Market I, I write about and finding or holding up stuff by Comme de Garçon that you think, what the hell is this? You know, what's that even made of? And it's sort of identifiable as trousers or a jacket, but it sort of has gone so far from the traditional remit of these garments that it, it becomes very artistic, very creative. And all of those questions and discussions about what the what the suit does to the body and those body modifications, when it comes to these more avant-garde designs, it, it kind of pushes it again and it, it creates a, a sort of body that challenges the world around it and challenges all of those preconceptions about how we should look. And that I've been that's fascinating as well. That really intrigues me, both in terms of the designers, but also the people who wears them. 
And sometimes it's quite nice to have those garments as well, have them in your collection to sort of look at them and sort of think about, you know, what 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 it is doing and how it challenges these sort of social structures that exist within our world. Yeah. I was thinking while you were talking here that there's good there's some stuff that isn't as pedestrian as most of what we see is. Yes. And I mean, my, I do try and steer away from the pedestrian, I think as much as possible in, in the sort of stuff I, in terms of clothing, write about and try and research and in some ways buy myself as well. I, I, and this goes back to those blue trousers with the red stripe as a tiny child, that there's something about being slightly different that has always intrigued me. And that does follow through in my interest of dress. I'm not, whilst I appreciate the craft and the, you know, the way in which we go from a cloth being woven through to the hand stitching and the padding and facing and all of those intricate details of a, a handmade Savile Row suit. If it's a pinstripe suit, I think it's interesting, but it doesn't particularly fire me. But if it's in a strange cloth or if it's been made with some unusual details, I think that's the sort of the bit that really interested me about suits. And I've, I think the, the thing that kind of tied me to some of those bespoke tailors in London initially was that question about, okay, if you wanted a suit that just looked normal, if we can use that word, you know, a, a pinstriped two-button suit, you could buy one off the peg for 500 quid maybe, or you could go and have one made for you for 5,000, maybe more. But most people wouldn't notice the difference when you were wearing it. So what's that all about? How, how do we unravel that? And really, yeah, for those people who want to create a different sort of sense of self, a different identity from those who are around them on the street, being able to do something a little bit different in those places and have something made that's quite shocking or quite normal, but with a little detail that other people who are interested in clothes will notice, helps to create that sense of self, that identity. But that's a sliding scale, and that goes from the perhaps just having a, a buttonhole in a slightly different colour all the way through to having your drop crotch trousers made out of viscose from Dover Street Market. Mm. That doesn't sound nice, <laughs> <laughs> the last one. <laughs> no, probably probably not one for walking the dog. No. Um, I see we're coming up to an hour and a half now. Anything you'd like to mention in closing? Anything we should have mentioned from your book? Um, I don't know, really. I think we've covered lots of the stuff. I mean, it's a, I, I suppose the only thing to say is that, as, as we talked about before this programme started, it is an academic book. That's the, the point. It comes from that place. But I hope that there's stuff in there as well for other people as well, particularly there's kind of passages from fashion shows and like looking around shops, those kind of recollections that are, I hope, more accessible. I'm not sure what you think. But yeah, it's, it's, been, it's been written for a broad audience. So that would be my, would be my takeaway. Go and have a look. Okay. Thanks a lot. It's been a joy. Thanks, Nick. And um, bye-bye. Bye. And that's all for this week's episode of Garmology. If you'd like to check out my guest further, there's links in the show notes. There's also links to uh, how you can uh, support the pod by buying me a cup of coffee. She's perfectly optional. I'm just pleased you're listening. If you'd like to get in touch, 
suggest a guest, just let me know what you think. It's uh, welldressedad at gmail.com. You can follow me on Instagram as welldressedad. So, until next week, bye-bye.